was like one minor premise short of a stillage, isn't it? You know, it's like, how is that even a sea shanty? Um, hey, uh, James, you, you, you brought chips. Uh, hey, uh, how's feedback for the podcast? I guess I'd say that people are really, really loving the idea of themselves liking your podcast. Fuck yes. But in terms of actually liking the podcast, yeah, I mean, much, much less so. Oh, right. What do you mean? Uh, I just, I mean, I'd suggest you move the podcast in the direction of other successful philosophy podcasts. You mean like philosophy nibbles? Um, I don't just mean philosophy nibbles. I mean all of the successful philosophy podcasts that are on at the moment. Ina Klein and Night Philosophy, Being yeah. Middle Class is Awesome. Oh, it is. I just think that the whole atmosphere of your podcast just needs a little bit more breathing space you're saying i should breathe more i'm saying that you talk too much what do you what do you mean i talk too much like jesus what didn't kierkegaard himself when he was president of the philosophical podcasting association didn't didn't he say like dead air is the death of podcasting like you, you can't have you can't have silence you can't have dead air it's like a, it's an insult to the audience Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you're listening to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. My name's Brian Cook. Uh, I have it with me in the studio Dr. Knox Peden. Uh, Knox is a DECRA research fellow at the Australian National University. I was uh, previously a member of the uh, Centre for the History of European Discourses, the University of Queensland. Um, and I'm here to talk to him uh, about his uh, career, his current work, and perhaps centrally about his um, uh, extraordinary uh, book published in 2014 called Spinoza Contra Phenomenology from uh, from Cavaillas to Deleuze. Um, Knox, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, and Knox, uh, to ask my, my first question, uh, how did philosophy ruin your life? <laughs> well, that remains to be seen. Uh, <laughs> uh, hopefully there's some life left, so we'll see. Um, I do... That's a good question. I feel somewhat derailed by philosophy because... Uh, it has definitely, maybe not ruined my career, but altered its trajectory because all my um, my previous degrees in education are all in history. Yes. Um, and originally, diplomatic history, political history, then I moved into intellectual history, and then uh, when I first came to Australia, that's still what I was doing in name, and I still think it's a lot of what I do, but um, for various reasons, I found myself uh, employed finally in a philosophy department in the School of Philosophy at ANU. And uh, it's interesting because uh, it has challenged a lot of sort of ingrained habits I acquired studying hmm. history. Um, and, you know, I've always been interested in the relationship between history and philosophy, but previously from a more historical perspective. And being in a philosophy program now has really uh, made me sort of think more about 
what's specifically going on involved, what's specifically going on, and what's really involved when people claim things about historical knowledge or try to make specifically historical arguments or anything. So right now I'm trying to uh, kind of negotiate between the two disciplines, which of course I think destines me to find uh, no audience and, <laughs> and no sympathetic ear and to say things that are either alienating or unintelligible to, uh, to virtually everybody. To, to your old milieu or to your new to, one, yeah, or exactly. both at the same time. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I know the question of intellectual history um, is, is very important to you, both as a philosophical question. And, and one of the, the things that I think first strikes any reader of Spinoza Contra Phenomenology is, it's, is that it's an exemplary work of intellectual history in the sense that uh, I, I think I and a, a lot of people would often cynically suggest that intellectual history is kind of an oxymoron, right? Like that, mm -hmm. that, that sometimes, you know, you see attempts at intellectual history where um, very often the, the content of, of thought is kind of um, reduced to the historical context, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. I, see this, I see this in works often also for sort of perhaps um, dubious political provenance, but the works of someone like uh, Richard Wallen spring, spring to mind to me in, in, mm -hmm. in, in, in that sense, where, where, where you kind of make the intellectual work sort of purely epiphenomenal to the, to the mm -hmm. historical context which it came from. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that's so interesting about Spinoza Contra Phenomenology is precisely um, that it avoids this trap, right? That it really mm -hmm. is a, a kind of in extraordinary work of, um, of intellectual reconstruction as well as contextualization. So um, let me ask you a bit about a bit about the genesis of this of this book. Like I, I know uh, you mentioned, uh, it, it, it took I think at some point in the acknowledgement you mentioned it took ten years uh, mm -hmm. ultimately to to put together, and you do this extraordinary unearthing of these figures, um, um, less well known uh, Jean Cavaillez, Desanti, Ferdinand Alquier, and 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 Marshall Guerru. Um, and, and yeah, what, what brought you to do this work of excavation in the name of, I, I think, to, to say one of the explicit theses of the book, sort of suggesting this other line in French thought mm. to the uh, uh, phenomenological, hermeneutic, deconstructive tradition that had perhaps played a, a big role in the Anglophone reception first there. How did, how did you end up writing a book like this? Wow. Well, first of all, I'm chuffed that you call it an exemplary work of intellectual history, which is interesting because a lot of people have... Um, I mean, I've been really gratified by the response to the book. It's, mm. been, uh, it's gotten a lot of readers, and, and there's been a serious engagement with it. But one of the things where there is criticism, it is precisely that I sort of... Uh, it, it questions how historical it actually is, because I give so much attention to the philosophy and to the arguments. Right. And some people say, this is a really good thing, but others sort of feel like... Like, there's a... I read something recently that described what I was doing as arcane, which in only well, certain contexts is really complimentary. But like, you know, so anyway, so I, th I think that's interesting. We'll come, we can maybe come back certainly, to that certainly. idea about like why, I mean, for me, like ideas, um, to, to write a history of ideas, to capture, if something was thought in the past, it still behooves us to give an adequate explanation of that thought. Absolutely. And so that's for me that, that kind of opposition between a trans historical philosophical framework and the history kind of breaks down because I'm like, well, this was thought, this was argued, I'm going to reconstruct it. That's still history. It was yes. thought in the past. And because otherwise history becomes a way almost of avoiding ideas. Well, it can be for some, yeah. it can be for some, but I mean, but also history is its own sort of mode of political thought, which is a kind of mm -hmm. interesting, interesting, uh, uh, way to think too. Anyway, but about where this project came from. I mean, the first thing is that like, I didn't originally have an idea of writing a book that was going to be an intervention um, or a reconceptualization of French intellectual history. Uh -huh. So it's interesting that that, I mean, that, that, that has become and is probably the most um, pronounced thesis of the book, it, 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 you know, kind of, I mean, it's funny, on one hand, I think that it's actually kind of a parochial story because it looks at some very academic 
thinkers dealing with Spinoza, and I didn't want to oversell it and say like, oh no, you know, this is like the real truth of 20th century French intellectual history. No, no. But I was just saying, look, there's this alternative line um, of people working with Spinoza's rationalism, people that were dubious of phenomenology, um, and uh, and this gives us a kind of new way to conceptualize the history. But the beginning of the project was about Spinoza. It wasn't about rationalism per se. It wasn't about an alternate history. And it came out of an observation in graduate school that... Um, uh, the same time I was reading some critical theory stuff, first discovering Althusser and Deleuze, uh, and noticing that they both talk about Spinoza, albeit in different ways. Mm. This is at the same time that uh, many historians and intellectual historians were talking about Jonathan Israel's work on yes. radical enlightenment. Yes. Uh, so I was reading this at the same time, and it was kind of hard to fathom that they were talking about the same person mm. um, when they talked about Spinoza, whether it's Althusser and Deleuze on the one hand or, or Jonathan Israel on the other. And so this introduced me to the idea that Spinoza can mean different things to different people and in different times. And this is almost a cliche of any kind of scholarship on Spinoza. You kind of have to begin with this paragraph that talks about how Novalis called him a God-drunken man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so-and-so yeah. called him, like, an atheist. Yes, and so, you indeed. know, and all these things, like, you know, uh, you have to talk about all these contradictions. But um, I was like, okay, well, what, how, how, do we, how do we make this all work together? So the first thing was to understand um, the Spinoza in the French context. Also, I should mention, this is the same time that Hart and Negri are getting a reading with yeah. Empire and all that yeah. work. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, something's in the air. Spinoza means all these different things. What, what's really going on? And... Uh, it wasn't until the doctoral research was underway um, that I kind of made the genealogical move. Like, at first, it was more about Althusser and Deleuze and potentially the thinkers that came after or some of their contemporaries, people like Alexandre Matron, who mm -hmm. I don't really talk about in the book. Yeah. But the genealogical thing came up when I discovered um, Jean Cavaillès, um, who actually one of my advisors at um, Berkeley first turned me on to, not my main advisor, but a guy named uh, David Bates, who mm -hmm. was really involved in in my thesis as well. He's like, oh, you should look at Caveas. He's interesting. I think David was doing his own work on like Gödel and Derrida. And he was like, there's this kind of mathematical element of French thought that people <laughs> haven't thought about. So that turned me on to Caveas and I found all this stuff about him identifying as Spinozist and, and then Badiou's Metapolitics uh, came out in English and he talks about Caveas there and this kind of Spinozist idea of necessity and how this is a different model of kind of commitment and political action and what one finds in, in Sartre, Sartre and, and yeah. other ideas. Yeah. And so all of this was very, very interesting. It was really problematic. I mean, it was, it was really, I wasn't like immediately persuaded, especially by the political stuff, but I, it, it, there was something significant about Caveas. And I mean, this made me realize, oh, that Althusser cites him in Reading Capital and and so I kind of realized there was this whole genealogy. And it wasn't until I was like doing the research on that earlier period, reading Caveas, and then I finally sat down and read Guru's major work on, on uh, Spinoza, this, these two volumes on books one and two of the ethics, uh, that I kind of realized what the meaning of Spinozism was for this generation. And I put Caveas and Guru together because they're roughly the yes, same age. Yes. Uh, Caveas gets killed in 1944 by the Nazis, but Guru has a career after the war in the College de France. And his book, his first book, major book on Spinoza, comes out in 68, but it's really a product of the 1950s. It's really a product of his lectures. <laughs> this is the called. huge volume one the on The huge God. volume yeah, yeah, yeah. one on Dieu. Yeah, yeah 30 yeah. pages of Spinoza generates <laughs> 500 pages of Guru. Um, and what was really striking was to read this stuff and realize that what Caveas and Guru in various ways were hostile toward uh, were philosophical moves that actually looked conspicuously a lot like what people like Hart and Negri were doing. So Indeed. I was like, well, this is weird. Like, okay, so Spinoza, they're all claiming some sort of relation with Spinoza, but this kind of contemporary Spinozism of affect and the multitude and all these things seems like really foreign from what one would have thought to be its genealogical origins. Mm. And this was, this was um, a real sort of um, breakthrough in the research because 
uh, it was a genuine kind of historical problem. You know what I mean? Like it was like, okay, for whatever the philosophical discrepancies that are going on um, and the way we want to align these different thinkers or say how they're, they're different or similar. Um, the fact that there was this difference between um, uh, what was going on in the early period with from Calvius to Guru and then what was passing for contemporary Spinozism after Deleuze um, was a historical problem to be solved. So I'm faced with this actual historical quandary, right, of like, how do you explain that all these people that claim a kind of, you know, affiliation with French Spinozism in the 20th century are saying things that seem very different from what Caves and Guru were saying. And of course, the turning point is Althusser and Deleuze. And so I, so the whole point becomes like, well, what happens in the 1960s? What, what changes in the sense of Spinozism mm -hmm. around this time? And it was just through doing the research that I kind of realized that, you know, uh, Althusser's polemics against humanism, uh, can be made uh, intelligible as a set of polemics against phenomenology, and he's explicit about this in Four Marks Reading Capital. And I realized that a lot of the arguments that are getting deployed there in the context of Marxism and Mar the idea of a Marxist science are actually formally very similar to the kinds of things that Caveas was saying in Philosophy of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science against phenomenology in that context. And that Guru, in sort of his different exegetical way, was talking about. Uh, in his study of Spinoza, and that, that Althusser was kind of repurposing a lot of this rationalism in this critique of phenomenal, phenomenological Marxism. Yeah, no, no, this, okay, there are a number, number of interesting things there. So yeah. on the one hand, um, I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned at, at one point that, uh, you know, you, the, the open secret of Althusser's Spinozism, that, that everyone mm -hmm. knows about this, and mm -hmm. yet, um, I, think, I think you perform a kind of work of just how much Althusser is indebted to a certain Spinoza, rather than just Spinoza standing as a kind of synecdoche for, for necessity or determinism or, or anti-materialism as opposed to idealism or something right. like that. Do all of this reconstruction. I, I, at a later point, I definitely want to ask you about your relationship to, to Althusser, because it, it, it seems to me um, that Althusser plays a very important role in your own thought and some of the work you've done after Spinoza Contra Phenomenology. But for the moment, if I can come back to this, this issue of rationalism within the book. So when we talked about it, uh, the book as, a, as an exemplary work of intellectual history. I mean, it occurs to me, and maybe this is projection on my part, but that the book does have a, a philosophical thesis that I maybe falsely attribute to you to to its author as something that you're sympathetic with. In that, in that, I do have the sense that the term rationalism in the book is is a sort of nom de guerre, right? That 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 up to a point, um, you know, you you are. If if not explicitly def if, if not explicitly defending or avowing like a a particular kind of philosophical rationalism, you are suggesting the the viability of such a project and that this project has has been has has been forgotten. Like, I, I, am I right to say that that rationalism, in the sense that it comes out in this book, or the idea of a modern rationalism, is something so so a a you know even after after Kant's after after Darwin etc. is something that means something to you. I mean, first is that true, and second, what would it mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it definitely means something to me. I mean, the first thing I might say though is there's a difference between being sympathetic to an idea and persuaded by it. Indeed. Um, the last of which can take a really long time um, and undergo revision and things like that. Yes. But I mean, obviously, it's clear that I have some sort of stake yes, in, the I, idea, I, in the idea of rationalism. Um, I mean, part of this is just being kind of pugnacious, like because what word would be more frowned upon in kind of a general critical theory kind of <laughs> structuralist like Absolutely. milieu, you know, like <laughs> who, you know, rationalism is as far as you can get from uh, from you know what passes for a lot of like European philosophy today. So there, that was part of it. But no, I mean, part of it was this idea that like. You know, we know things. That we know things about the world. 
um, that we, we can be confident in the ways we know them, um, that we can discover the reasons for things, that we discover causes for things. Um, but I, you know, I'm gripped by the idea that if you follow this line of thought, you do wind up in uh, uh, sort of troubling, you know, nihilistic consequences. And I mean, there's a whole body of literature on Spinoza right now that deals with this. I was just reading this book, Kant's Critique of Spinoza by Omri Boehm, who like, mm. and you know, it, it, it's funny, it's a very kind of provocative revisionist thesis. And I feel like if it was, you know, if it wasn't written with someone with like his imprimatur, people would kind of think it's crazy, this idea <laughs> that like, that, you know, Kant was really battling Spinozism and, and not really Leibnizian, Wolfian rationalism and those things. But regardless of, of the validity of, of Bohm's thesis, and it's, very, it's a provocatively powerfully argued book, I mean, he opens with this preface um, about, you know, Spino the consequences of Spinozism are basically a kind of elimination of freedom as, as we think of it, or the, you know, the elimination of a space for something that would be exempt from causal determination of a kind of naturalist order, that, that Spinozism is the most thoroughgoing rationalism, the most thoroughgoing naturalism that one can imagine. Um, and so this creates a real paradox, because if you're like, well, why are like Marxists or political thinkers like, trying to like engage with this philosophy and then generate a kind of, uh, a kind of politics out of it? And, and um, I don't know, I mean, the thing that, that kind of gripped me in trying to, to, to study thinkers that were motivated by this question is, what you find ultimately is a kind of, um, to me at least, a kind of uh, divergence between the true and the good, if we can speak so boldly. You know what I mean? Like this idea that, like, okay, Spinoza can tell you a lot of true things, uh, but they're not going to help you very much. And one of the things that's been sort of salutary about being in an, in an analytic philosophy department recently is to find out, first of all, that rationalism isn't a bad word, that mm -hmm. a lot of many successful important philosophers proudly self-identify as rationalists, but also to find out that truth is something of a trivial concept. You know what I mean? Like, like there's this idea, I think, kind of in European philosophy and critical theory that, you know, no one's going to be so bold as to actually make truth claims. You know what I mean? It's really your perspective and things like that. And it's like, no, lots of things are true without being significant. Um, and so one of the big uh, criticisms of something like Spinozism is that, I mean, this was in a way Hegel's criticism too, is that, you know, it, it, uh, it may be true, but it doesn't tell us anything. Yes. You know? But, I, but to me, that's really, that's, I don't know, that just still kind of grips me. Uh, the idea that, like, how do you refute Spinozism without an appeal to something that's basically extra-rational? Or, so, or without yes. basically an act of faith? As Kant said, you know, I put limits on reason to, to make room for to make faith. Room for faith. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, you're going to have to make a decision on that one way or the other. Yeah, or I, not. You can just keep being a philosophy scholar <laughs> and, and do work indefinitely. But it, it, it does, you know. yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to, yeah, of course that is, as, as you just said, a very, a very significant question for you. I mean, on, the, on this question of, of the nihilistic consequences of Spinoza, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, that uh, when you talk about this new book by Byrne, Henri uh, Byrne, yeah. That, um, that, that seems to, I mean, not, not having read the book, but to reprise, I mean, what was said about Spinoza by, by Bale, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then particularly that, that generation of post-Kantians after Jacobi, the, the, yeah, the yeah. Pante pantheismus strike. There was all this, and, and you know, part of Jacobi's critique, um, exactly on the on the Kantian is to say yes, Spinoza, you know, is the only consistent rationalist. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kudos to him for for being absolutely consistent in the way that someone like Leibniz isn't. Right. But it leads to nihilism, right. as Jacobi coins the word to describe the consequences of Spinoza's system in that way. It leads to nihilism, and thus the only way out of nihilism is with a, a salto mortal, with is is with a, a leap of faith. Right. right. Um, now, uh, in contrast, though, I I think. Um, one of the one of the so two thing two things about uh, how this is played out in Spinoza contra phenomenology like the these sort of 
um, most frequently recurring leitmotif of, of the book, I think, is the line variously translated from the treatise on the emendation of the intellect that comes up in almost all of the thinkers that you're looking at and that you yourself explore how each of the thinkers looks at this differently, this line that we have true ideas from, mm. the, from the treatise on the emendation of the intellect. And I think, mm. I think almost all of the book is an attempt to explore what that phrase might mean, what the consequences of it are. And... Um, before I get you to say something about, um, it also reminds me of in, in the second chapter on the book when you compare um, uh, uh, Guerrero and Alquier, mm -hmm. there's, you know, um, um, you have Alquier again reprising and, and, and you suggest in a way that's exemplary for the French phenomenological tradition for Marion, um, with, with whom you open the book, among others, that for, for Alquier, yeah, Spinoza represents this kind of irrational hubris of rationalism mm -hmm. whereby thinking to know anything he he misses out on the ineffable you know the uh, spur to philosophy of, of some sort of existential crisis and that and against that you have you have guru um who i think you're more sympathetic to who's trying to purge philosophy of the of the contingent of the of the biographical and 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 so on and so mm -hmm. but of course um uh you know, between Alquier and, and, and Guerrero, you could you could sort of say, you know, Guerrero has a sort of classically rationalist position on Spinoza, but maybe one that could lead, as Alquier would see it, and maybe as this Burma guy would say, it, to that argument about Spinoza that that yes, it's brilliantly rational, but you can't see how it would be effective in the realm of values and meanings and politics and so mm -hmm. on. But then your sort of central move is to is to then go to the people who who think that Spinoza is. Uh, useful for thinking politics and and like universal emancipatory politics almost because and because and not despite both the rationalism mm. and the determinism and the mm. absence of you know the the a certain um uh critique of the the imaginary realm of the humor like 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 that that mm. that sort of and th this seems to me part of your interest like how can you square coming back to the true and the good how can you square um uh, a rationalism that gets around that uh, a sort of anthropocentric focus, like remains within the realm of imagining, with an emancipatory politics. Like how how could how could a become a motive for, for yeah? B? That's uh, that's a that's a difficult set of questions. Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, the 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 climax of that discussion of Guru and Alkier, uh, you know. Uh, uh, for listeners who don't know, what's interesting about this chapter is that it's I, I narrate the history of this public polemic between these two uh, French historians of philosophy, Marcel Garou and Ferdinand Alquier, who argue about um, kind of the priority of Descartes or Spinoza and giving us a viable rationalism, and they give different contending readings of the two thinkers, and they argue back and forth about the significance of, of, uh, of, of these thinkers for philosophy. And, and Garou, basic, I mean, excuse me, Alquier basically reads Descartes as a kind of existentialist before the letter, <laughs> who uh, gets us encounter, gets in a kind of encounter with this ineffable experience that is the grounding of the cogito, and it's kind of, this is a true experience that any one of us can, can find. When we throw anything into doubt, we can arrive at a kind of essential truth, which is the fact of our own thinking, and the fact that that thinking is us, that's who I am, is this thinking being. And Guru will have none of this. He's mm. like, no, that introduces this kind of occult quality into Cartesian rationalism. Um, but then what Guru does is really weird. is to kind of show that Alkie is wrong about Descartes. He winds up writing a series of books about Spinoza, mm -hmm. um, which kind of shows Spinoza as the more radical Cartesian, kind of purging Descartes of this occult element. This is Guru's thesis against Alkie. But the most telling moment in their public polemic is that something I think I narrate in the book where there's a talk where Alkie says, well, look, look, don't get me wrong. When I say truth, I mean, yeah, basically what I mean is what, you know... Uh, 
Pilate said, or what, I, don't, I don't know my Bible well enough, which is going to maybe like weaken the, you know, uh, how compelling this is. But like something about, you know, when Jesus says, I am the, the truth. Way, the truth, I am the way, the yeah, truth, yeah, and life. Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and it's funny because Guru's like, game over. Exactly. That's what, I've been trying, <laughs> that's what I've been trying to get you to admit for like 30 years. That that's what you mean by truth. And like, if that's a problem, if that's your yeah. analogy. And that what I mean by truth, and now I'm paraphrasing, is, uh, you know, a truth that could be kind of, you know, ad infinitum. Various things are true. And this link, you know, this is true, that's true, that's true. And, and like, there, there need be no pathos of truth with yeah. a capital T, you know, yeah. that, like, reveals yeah. something. It's like, things are true kind of in a trivial way. This is why you, like, I don't know, ta- were you talking about someone like Tarski or, or well, whatever? Well, I was going to get to that, exactly. Yeah, 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 so yeah, you, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned that, you know, you notice the recurrence of the idea we have true ideas yeah. throughout the book. And it's true, and I, I dropped, I, I, I trade a lot on that. I, mm, I, I try to get a lot out of that, but I, but I don't explain it very well in Spinoza's Contra Phenomenology. So actually, the working title of my next book is Spinoza's True Ideas. Aha, aha. And so I really want to kind of, um, I should say, my next book on Spinoza, like this next, this next big project that part, the Decra is partly funding, is to try to get a sense of uh, what this really means. And it's funny that you bring up Tarski because there is an analogy, and there is a uh, something I've been pursuing in some work on. Um, an important analytic philosopher named Donald Davidson, uh, who in the 90s, you know, some continental European philosophers read him because of certain kind of apparent similarities with Heidegger and Gottman, Gottman yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but one of, you know, Davidson's, like what he's kind of known for or what made him famous, among other things, is his, his semantic conception of truth that he borrows from Tarski, which takes this trivial idea, you know, the sentence snow is white is true if and only if snow is white. And gives us it says this is basically a model for truth that it basically truth is a semantic concept and so the point in any given situation is to find out what someone means by saying something is true by saying a sentence is true and that by tracking those moments uh, when you know these t sentences say a certain smaller sentence are true you kind of find out how truth works mm-hmm. and um, I mean there's a lot of technical stuff here that's very hard to grapple with and I'm definitely don't have a mastery of it but I'm working through it now and 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 I think it's significant. That um, in other aspects of his work, Davidson points to a similarity uh, with Spinozism, uh, with Spinoza's thought, particularly about philosophy of mind and things like that. Um, and I'm like, well, there's a kind of, I mean, I have like kind of holist prejudices here. I think things kind of, I'm a rationalist, right? Things have to hang together. And I think that it kind of makes sense that this kind of semantic conception of truth that Davidson's running um, is actually kind of in the ballpark of what Spinoza means when he says we have true ideas. Habemis enum ideam verum. Mm-hmm. Um, there's controversy about whether he means we have a single true idea or we all have the same true idea. Mm-hmm. I am of the camp that thinks he just says, for we have true ideas. Plural. Plural. Yeah. Like we have true, there are ideas we have and they're true. And of course, the concept of ideas is problematic. You know, Davidson's not talking about ideas, he's talking about, you know, propositions and things like that. But um, so it's purely semantic. But still, the, the notion of truth that's at work there. I think is comparable. And then just to kind of add another level of mystique to this, which could turn out to be a false trail, is, yeah, Davidson gets all this from Tarski. Mm-hmm. Um, he reappropriates what Tarski does in informal languages and applies it to natural languages, which is the controversial or innovative move, depending on how you want to look on it. Um, but Tarski was obviously also centrally important to Caveas. Uh-huh. And so, like, in sort of uh-huh. Logique et la Terre de la Science, uh, Tarski yeah. kind of in this middle section on Carnap and the Logical Positivist, Tarski kind of turns out to be the hero um, against Carnap and his, like, overly kind of syntactic uh, take on logic. And so this all needs to be fleshed out, but there is a kind of, I mean, superficial at least, like, weird common genealogy. Yeah, there, yeah. You know, like, in what, to what role Tarski and semantic conceptions of truth would play in a kind of Spinozistic rationalism. So... 
a lot of this is getting incorporated into the into the next project. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, so see, you asked, I think, too, about how any of this connects with politics. Well, you know, I think that there's a there's a kind of idea that comes out of post-structuralism in its various forms, or so-called postmodernism. Um, that, you know, truth is this kind of bad word. It's not about truth claims. That they, We have a very pragmatic conception of truth. Mm-hmm. Take someone like Rorty, you know. Yeah, um, And a very deflationary account of truth. And mm-hmm. he actually often tried to enlist Davidson as an important figure mm-hmm. in his own work. Yeah. But Davidson always kind of resisted ever giving up on his rationalist commitments, mm-hmm. even though Rorty tried to get him to. But obviously, um, what's interesting here is that there was kind of a craving for the idea of truth to get rebooted. And I think that that's one reason that people that are reading French philosophy are really happy to discover Badiou. Badiou, absolutely. Um, yeah, but uh, there's this idea that, like, okay, politics has kind of become stagnant in this world of opinion, and, like, everyone has their perspective, and we're all incommensurable cultures, and yes. pure difference, and, yes. Yes, you know, do. and identity politics, and that whole, you know, all these kind of things that glibly get trotted out and, and then, um, you know, frowned upon. But I think that... Um, what this idea of truth that I'm, or notion of true ideas that I think you can get out of Spinozism, via even someone like Althusser, maybe even spite himself, you can find it in different ways with Davidson, is that truth does have a, a role to play in politics, insofar as polit- politics is an activity that involves speaking beings uh, who make claims that, and disagree about them, and uh, truth plays a role in those disagreements, because basically you can't really have a disagreement about how the world is. If without, you, a without a concept of truth, of truth. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. Indeed. And so it's not about. So I actually, you know, as you know from the book, uh, kind of, I, I don't like uh, Badiou's concept of truth. Mm, capital I do T. Know this. Yeah. Um, and what he tries to get out of that, um, uh, but it, but that doesn't mean I don't like truth. I actually think that truth is centrally important, and I think this is this is pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, okay. So on this. On this, coming back to this this question of of, 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 of truth and politics, I mean, you, you, you uh, gave a, a very eloquent um, statement about about how you see the connection. But um, I mean, one of the controversies that's always existed in 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 Spinoza scholarship is how it is that Spinoza writes this book that he calls an ethics, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the relationship between the you know the the parts of the ethics that, as you point out, that Guerrero didn't end up writing about, like, yeah, like yeah. books books three to five, mm-hmm. and and the rest of it. I mean, even even when you speak about Hart and Negri, like maybe these are guys who read books three to four, ignoring one and two. Maybe yeah. Guerrero reads books one and two, but in fact, mm-hmm. it is it is five books, and and people have always asked about the connection between. Well, particularly, and as as I know, uh, you say Alkier uh, points to the connection between the the kind of ontology, I suppose, of the mm. of the fir- and epistemology of the first two books, and and the the it's some it's the extravagant claims of especially book five, which I know people like Bertrand Russell have always wanted to sort of strip from the canon, like like book five, where, where he talks about the the possibility of achieving beatitude in this life, Badiou's li- line that Badiou loves about we you know we feel that we are immortal and and eternal, and all of, eternal. eternal. Pardon, no, no. That's very important, that actually. Is, it is very, very important. <laughs> yes, because we feel we model is like a weird metaphysical, obviously false <laughs> claim. No, also feel... involves negation. It does. It does. No, 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 yeah, no. Yeah. You're absolutely right. That was a, that was a stupid thing for you to say. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Um, but so uh, in 
Spinoza contra phenomenology, I, I think the main way, you know, you, you look at an example of someone making use of Spinoza, and it's not the Spinoza of affect of, mm-hmm. of book three, um, using Spinoza in a, in a clearly political context in relation to a, a sort of universalist, emancipatory Marx posit is via the figure of, of Louis Althusser. I, I, mm-hmm. I would like you to, if you, if you could tell, tell me a bit about, um, about what it is about, about uh, yeah, what you said, the relationship between Althusser and Spinoza, but also what Althusser means to you as a, as a um, contributor to, to political debates and maybe, maybe sort of current political philosophical debates. Because my, my sense is that, that um, up to this point, like I've seen you kind of um, polemicize sort of recently in favor of Althusser against a certain, I don't, I don't know what I call it, like humanist Marxist mm. doxa or, or something like that. Yeah, mm. what, what do you, what's the importance of Althusser? Hmm, 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 hmm. Well, to, you know, I'll, I'll come to Althusser, uh, but to, to address your point about why, you know, Spinoza calls it the ethics, um, I ignore books three to five. Uh, this is actually one of the things that kind of... Uh, well, do you? I, I, well, I, I, you know, yeah. in, in Spinoza Contraphenomenology I do, but yeah, I, have right, a historical, right. I have a warrant for this. Yeah, it's indeed you do. Because yeah. the, the authors that I'm looking at don't. Do. And yeah, that's yeah, where that's it is, right. like a historical thesis. And I'm like, yeah, they did not... They, they generally avoided these sections of the ethics. And what happens after 68 and after Deleuze is that people rediscover those books yes, of the indeed. ethics. And, uh, I mean, it's important, just before we get into Althusser, to mention that, you know, the book comes to Althusser, but then the real turning point is with Deleuze, because my central claim there is that if prior to Deleuze, phenomenology in a kind of, uh, you know, uniquely French, arguably parochial Spinoza's rationalism were considered incommensurable and, and sort of antithetical philosophical projects, as Foucault famously says in the introduction to Congiam, although he kind of looks at both of these lines as broadly phenomenological. Mm, the normal and the pathological. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he says, yeah. you know, one side is subject and, and uh, the other side is concept. Mm. And, and yeah, anyway. Okay, that was kind of a digression. The point being that these things were kind of considered opposed. I think Foucault was right in his diagnosis. Um, But with Deleuze, I think his real value as a metaphysician and a philosopher is to really kind of synthesize Heideggerian ontology with a Spinozistic rationalism. Yes. Uh, Say synthesize, that's just an empirical description of what he's doing in his writing. Yes. It's not a claim about how successful it is or persuasive or useful or anything like that. But I I do think that that's a way to describe Deleuze's project that is persuasive, Um, at least to me. Obviously, I think that's what I'm saying. But, um, (laughs) But so the point is that but once you do that, you then finally can read the stuff about affect in a new way. I mean, because it gets infused with the kind of uh, ontological difference and people rethink nature naturons naturant along the lines of a kind of ontological ontic distinction. Like right, where right. active nature is kind of like Heideggerian being and, you know, nat- nature naturata is like accreted nature, kind of ontic <laughs> fixed entities. Yes, yes. And, and like, so the reading changes and it's, and, um, I have enough of a historian in me that I'm not going to come out and say, no, that's wrong. Like, that's yeah, totally yeah, untenable. Sure. That you can't, like, assimilate these things. But it does mean the sense of Spinozism changes. Yes. And, and what it means, too, then, is a lot of the um, other commitments that come along with a kind of Heideggerian conception of ontology get imported into Spinozism. And Spinoza's rationalism of a French variety. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing in t- contemporary French Spinozism um, is kind of dealing with lingering tensions and difficulties in trying to kind of bring all these things together. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Someone like Frédéric Lordon is a little different, is a little kind of du côté from this. Like he, <laughs> he has a little bit of a different take on it. But, um, but anyway, so to come back, um, so it's important to kind of know that that's where the, where the book ends. And, and so what's the significance about Althusser? Because 
you're right that I've, I've done some writing on him recently. I mean, part of this is occasional. You know, it's the 50th anniversary of Reading Capital. Yeah. You publish a book on Al Jazeera. Fortunately, people notice and might ask you to say something about <laughs> it, which is nice. Um, so, you, know, you have to keep in mind such contingency in the history of sure, philosophy. Sure, sure. It's very specific. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so that happens. But it is true that the Al Jazeera chapters, I mean, because I, I think, you know, as I say very strongly, like his, his commitments are there, um, but they kind of undermine his own his own Marxism. I mean, it's kind of like a Marxism. What is a Marxism without teleology? What is a Marxism yeah, without indeed, these indeed, things? Yeah, indeed, indeed, um, And how do we, how would that even still be a Marxism? And I do think that Althusser completely eliminates um, a, any kind of eschatology from Marxism. Mm -hmm. And the other problem, of course, that bothers people is with his universal conception of ideology, he gets rid of any notion that one would ever get outside of ideology. Yeah. He's like, well, you know, if, if we have a revolution and we're emancipated, we're still going to be in ideology. Yeah. It just yeah. might be a different ideology. And so all these things are very, very disappointing to a lot of people. But what I think is still really valuable in Althusser's rationalism and being within this kind of Marxist framework is the critical purchase he has on other philosophical or political theoretical projects that try to um, ground politics in some sort of metaphysical conception of uh, either human essence, so kind of, you know, cognitive like claim about what humans are and what mm -hmm. they will be or various normative claims about what they might happen to be and should be. Mm -hmm. And Althusser's Spinozistic rationalism is able to kind of put the brakes on those moves and kind of show like, look, well, you're obviously appealing to this unwarranted transcendental principle that is then serving as the guarantor for how this is going to work. You're, you have some sort of external, external marker of value that is determining, um, uh, how you judge various political situations and how you think they ought to be. Now, one would say, obviously, doesn't Marxism have that too? I mean, it huh. obviously has an external marker value. It, it wants to overcome alienation. Um, but the provocation of Althusser's, you know, philologically dubious theses about <laughs> an epistemological break in Marx is actually, I think, about getting away from this idea of alienation. Because mm. it's like, look, it means various different things even within Marx himself. But one of the kind of recurrent ideas is that alienation means that there's some sort of discrepancy between um, my world and my perspective on the world, or myself and my perspective on myself. There were always kind of split subjects in the Lacanian sense or something like that. And that we are alien, or, you know, and obviously in the labor situation, we are literally alienated from the fruits of our own labor as they, they go on the market or whatnot, things like that. Um, but there's this idea that, like, the emancipatory goal, that in communism, somehow we would cease to be alienated. And I think that by like saying, no, there will still be ideology, there will still be all these things, um, Althusser sort of shows that like overcoming alienation is not a really viable political goal. Um, and it's not really the task of politics. And there are various moments in the unpublished things that are coming out um, from, you know, around the late 60s and early 70s, especially the big volume on reproduction, uh, which is, was the original place where the famous ideological state apparatus, as I say, went. The full volume. That the full volume that that's extracted from. Yeah. Is you see Althusser really struggling with a discourse of exploitation, which he prioritizes over alienation. Yes. And so it's not that, like, political, any kind of emancipatory politics would be about um, overcoming alienation or ending alienation and establishing some sort of full presence to self. It's that the task of politics is locally, incessantly... Um, uh, trying to end relations of exploitation. Yes. 
um, which is a very different thing. And to and then this raises, creates the problem of knowledge because then the sense of Marxism is about um, taking moments where where people may not actually even be aware they're being exploited. Yes. And showing that they're being exploited. And this is the one kind of, you know, elitist thing about Marxism that people don't like, that someone like Rancière doesn't like, that they don't like, that they think that there's someone who has to come in and explain to people what is happening to them. A Leninist. Uh, yeah. A, a, some, what's yeah. pejoratively called a Leninist. Yeah, but it's like, like but, yeah. but then at some, and, and there are many things I love about Rancière, but yes, at some yes. point, like, it is possible that someone, I mean, it just seems kind of stands to reason that people can know or not know that they're being exploited. Certainly. Of course. And so I'm like, well, then it becomes this project of, how you describe something and how you make a set of truth claims about a relation being exploited. Right, right. And then you're like actually having disagreements and you get back to this idea of true ideas. And whether rationalism. Yeah, whether it's true that you're being exploited Yes, or not. yes, yes. Um, and so you need to have like a robust kind of concept of what that is. Althusser never develops that. But he develops, I think, you know, the in his work is the kind of various set of rationalist commitments that would posit that as, a, as the project to understand. I mean, there are all kinds of contradictions in Althusser that are mm -hmm. various contradictions of of Marxism about whether or not, you know, this is, these kinds of features are just unique to a capitalist period in history and, or whether it's history to core and like all that mm. stuff about trying to reconcile these kind of scientific claims with the kind of historical view of, of change over time. But, you know, I mean, I think that Althusser really succeeds or one of the real virtues of his work is really challenging um, that kind of philosophy of history, any kind of history that would, you know, makes it kind of, that treats history as a story of human emancipation, except in some kind of epiphenomenal sense, you know, mm. from like local successful attempts to end exploitative relations. I mean, you, yeah, you, you seem to me to purge, I mean, okay, I mean, this partially might just be a, a rephrasing of, of what you, you just said, but, but just, I, I just want you to sort of correct me if I'm, 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 I'm wrong about this, but, but the, it seems to me one of the, the virtues of Althusser for you is that he kind of purges Marxism of a a kind of uh, metaphysical goal, almost a sort of metaphysical mm -hmm. utopian goal, which is how you see as the as as the the overcoming of alienation, right? Like something that is at once vague and and you know would require some sort of uh, you know but, but like uh, a, a sense that we are you know that we feel completely uh, uh, unified and present to the society, right? And it's just mm -hmm. like, no, jettison that goal. Mm -hmm. Because the, the point you just made about the teleology of, of history, I feel, I feel that argument is quite uncontroversial, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's the least fashionable element of, of the Marxist, sort of um, Gaussian, like, of any, element, any, any evocation of, of a philosophy of history. But the more controversial but, but more interesting claim that you, I, th I think you get out of Althusser is actually alienation, this, this sort of category of, of Marxism, this, this fundamental category, um, has to go, right? Like, like that it's, it's kind of, um, uh, it's something that stops us from looking at what Marxism should actually, with, at real relations of um, exploitation. And, and I think you've, you've made this sort of beautiful circle in the, in the argument here, but this is also where the rationalism comes in, about at the level of the, the intelligibility of, of mm. exploitation or the transmissibility of the, of the intelligibility of, um, mm. of, of, of exploitation. This is, this is how you connect rationalism and, mm. and, and also that, right. Okay. So, um, yeah. So how has this project developed since the time of, or, or hmm, not this project, but because obviously the, the project of Spinoza Contra Phenomenology is, is, is completed, but um, you talked a, a, a bit about how your works um, developed uh, since writing the book. So you can tell me, uh, I suppose, linking things, two things together um, about 
your current relationship to analytic philosophy and mm -hmm. and the role apart from the stuff we've already discussed about Tarski, the role that will play in the the new Spinoza book. In oh wow! Whew. Well, okay, you know it's funny how um, the things that happen to you in your life always seem to acquire some quality of necessity when you look back at them <laughs> retrospectively. Oh, it had to happen that way. Or, this, or your life kind of always makes sense to you when, yes, you, when yes. you put it back together. Um, I remember as I got asked once at a job interview that I failed. I did not succeed. At. Uh, it was one of my first job interviews ever. And they said, well, so you used to study diplomatic history. And now you're like writing a book on French Spinozism. What gives, basically? And I had no answer. I just kind of drooled in front of them. And then, like, the next day, I was like, well, God, if I thought of a better answer to that, what would I say? I'd say, well, you know, one of the things that gripped me about studying diplomatic history was the idea that you're studying a political situation uh, that is devoid of a sovereign instance, that there mm. is no supranational state in which we can orient our conceptions of how political conflict happens. So what's interesting about studying international politics is you have kind of politics in its pure form, you know, politics without a sovereign. And likewise, in the Spinoza's conception of metaphysics or politics, you think of how things relate absent a transcendental instance that guarantees how they all hang together. And I was like, oh man, that, if I could have like pulled that together, that would have really pulled one past them. And I was like, but actually it's true. You know what I mean? Like, oh wait, wait, that is, that is the logic of my own intellectual development. I'm glad I thought of that, you know? Because at the time I thought I was just making something up to make it, to rationalize it, as it were. But I'm like, no, that is obviously the guiding thread to everything. But, I think it's a mixture of the, the l'esprit d'escalier, but also that, but also that thing that, I think that's happened to every teacher or maybe a person at a, a conference, right? When someone asks you a question and you bluff, like you kind of bullshit at mm -hmm. the beginning and then you get to the end of it and realize that you've just said a true thing. You, like, yeah, you, you, just, yeah, yeah. you had a true idea <laughs> yeah. like, in spite of yourself. And that's yeah, what exactly. happened, right? right. Uh, so, that, so that's kind of the background. So, so I, you know, I feel like some you know, similar machinations are at work now with being in an analytic philosophy department. Mm -hmm. Like that I... Uh, you know, when I when I first approached ANU, actually, I moved my Decker there for uh, for personal reasons. I was originally at uh, the Center for History of European Discourses in Queensland, which is now part of the Institute of Advanced Study in the Humanities there. And when I moved to ANU for personal reasons, I approached history, and then, you know, everyone was very was was kind about this, but they were just like, "We don't think your work has a has a place here." Basically, I mean, I'm right. I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting, you know, <laughs> I'm interpreting various polite silences, <laughs> uh, but. You know, and they're like, really, you should be in philosophy. And for a long time, I was like, I'm, but I'm not. All my degrees are in history. And like, oh, man, like, A&U is like notoriously analytic. Yes, They're going to yes. want nothing to do with this. Um, but no, they were remarkably generous, remarkably welcoming. Um, had a school at the time, Al Hayek, like, couldn't have been kind of more receptive to what I was bringing. I mean, granted, I was like showing up with all this free money and like <laughs> things. So, of course, he was going to be receptive. But he was. I mean, and he even said something to the effect of like, look, we, we're a world-class philosophy program. And we're, we don't really have anyone doing history of philosophy kind of right. the way you do. Right. And so, right. of course of course we want you here and that's that's great so it was all it's all been well and good but of course it meant at first i kind of felt like this ethnographer among like a new <laughs> tribe you know like trying to kind of learn the codes and conventions of seminar participation and things like that and i'm still learning all these things and you know there are a lot of different conventions in 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 studying analytic philosophy um or in participating in it but anyway what was what made it a boon for my research is um with the Spinoza stuff, I mean, Spinoza, there's a great analytic literature on Spinoza right now. Right. Um, I mean, this guy, Omri Boyam, I mentioned, is part of it. He's a student, Michael De La Roca. There are all kinds of oh, people right, 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 in, yeah. in North America, and yeah. uh, mainly, uh, that you know are conversant with what's going on in analytic philosophy. They come out of analytic programs, and they do great work on Spinoza. So Spinoza is a, a kind of a, a, you know, has an analytic audience. And for me, this was a real 
you know, it's been great to kind of get out of the French context or to get sure, out of the sure, German sure. idealism historical context yeah. and kind of say, okay, look, these are all these other ways to talk about Spinoza. And yet, it all, it's all still Spinoza they're talking about, so this all hangs together in mm, interesting mm. ways. And then I started reading all the Davidson because I saw a reference to his Spinozism. And at first, this was strategic. I was like, well, I, I can have a conversation about Alan de Flossie if I can understand something about Davidson. But then the more work I did on him, I realized that... Um, uh, what he was saying was really relevant to my other line of research, which is independent of this, well, I say independent of the Spinoza stuff, but in fact, it's becoming increasingly related, is what's going on actually in historical interpretation. That what makes historical interpretation a different kind of interpretation from other kinds of interpretation. And, you know, because historians are really adamant about there's a such thing as historical research, historical argument, yeah. uh, whether we're talking intellectual history or other kinds of mm-hmm. history. And the more and more I was reading Davidson and related thinkers, I was like, wow, this is, um, historians are really hard pressed to define what they mean by this qualifier historical and like mm-hmm. what it changes in terms of how we come to understand things. Because the, the, when you're trained in history, I mean, the cardinal sin you learn to avoid is presentism. The idea that yes. you would ever judge the past according to the standards of the present, or that you would allow your conception of how things work to kind of blind you to understanding how alternative past cultures or, or you know saw the world. And of course, this is a real problem when people do history of science and things like that. Um, but you learn to avoid this. And so there's a, there becomes this idea that like, there is some, for lack of a better word, metaphysical or kind of absolute, at least, kind of divide between the past and the present that has to be overcome to then understand the past. Yes. Um, and the past has to be recovered or has to be reconstituted. And it, it, it requires a certain kind of disposition to understand it. Um, now, I'm all for methods of historical research, learning about source criticism, good philology, how to use an archive, stuff like mm-hmm. that. But it's become more and more interesting to me, this idea that like, it becomes really hard to defend uh, the qualitative distinction between interpreting an utterance that happened five minutes ago and happened 500 years ago. Hmm. Um, I mean, that the real differences between these are, are uh, uh, on a scale of, you know, it has to do with like, epistemic scarcity, with how much evidence you have that will help you understand something, or if you share the convention with the, the person you heard five minutes ago versus not knowing the convention of the person 500 years ago and having to kind of recover that. But in principle, it becomes really hard to kind of to to articulate some sort of infrangible frontier that kind of divides the past from the present. Right. And of course, you know, the major keyword uh, that does this work for a lot of historians and a lot of philosophers at this conference is modernity, right? It's the yes, idea indeed. that like there is a thing called modernity and there is a thing called pre-modernity, pre-modernity it's a, medieval, it's a, ancient, you know. It's you know. a rupture between, yeah. yeah, yeah or it's, it's like Guru or Aukier said to Guru, it's not like Descartes was going around saying, hey, I'm Cartesian. You know, you just like, it's like people in the Middle Ages weren't going around saying, hmm, can't wait to get to the modern age. You know, this middle stuff is sick of being in the old, middle. Yeah, 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 very yeah. ancient here in Rome, you know. And so like, it's a story we tell that periodizes things and helps us kind of confer intelligibility on different periods. And, and um, that's all well and good. But at the end of the day, I think that these are kind of, you know, shorthands or, again, like I said, conventions. Like, modernity is a convention. Like, it's a way of kind of a shorthand for signaling a lot of things about a certain period of time and, and how you might describe it as a kind of unified whole. But when it comes to, like, actually uh, thinking about what goes on when people try to interpret uh, the past and the kinds of commitments they bring to it, I think it becomes hard um, to kind of insist on that, on, on those divides as, as being... Um, more than conventional. Okay. Um, and so again, this is one of the things about Davidson's work that really interests me is that he, you know, 
he kind of challenges the primacy of convention as being a way that if you understand the conventions, then you can derive all the meaning and the kind of convention comes first or meaning derives from convention. And he's like, no, 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 conventions are just shortcuts. Uh, interpretation is actually something more basic than that. And it helps that you and I both speak English and it helps that you and I have similar educations. It helps us understand each other. But there's really no difference in my effort to understand your meaning um, in this shared space we're in than there would be for my trying to understand the meaning of any other speaking being in any kind of shared space. And then it becomes, how do you want to find shared space? This office that we're in talking about, this campus that we're on, this world right now, yep. or the world over a temporal expanse going into the past. It's like, how do you right. actually partition these things? And right. So you've got, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so you've got this, so yeah, I mean, it would be, it would be a massive difference in like you trying to understand the the Etruscans compared to trying to understand me, but you're sort of saying it's still it's still ultimately a kind of a difference of degree, not a difference in kind. Yes. Like you're you you lack certain resources, most egregiously the language. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. however, and and yeah, that's a big deal. But yeah. but you're but you're denying an in principle difference. I mean, this this seems to me. I mean. Uh, with this turning contingency into necessity thing that we're talking about biographically, <laughs> it seems to me, I mean, still Spinot says Knox in the sense that, yeah. I mean, you know, one of, one of the things that, that I think Mark Spinot that I, I see in what you've just said is this kind of, um, this this hatred of of gaps, like like of a, of a sense of like, you know, and sudden you, you, you leap from the world of causes into the world of norms or, mm -hmm. or, or values or something like mm -hmm. that. And, I, and, and, you know, it strikes me that you, uh, you know, do not like this, uh, the, this, this kind of, I mean, let's, like, broadly speaking, vulgarly speaking, Kantian kind mm -hmm. of splitting mm -hmm. and things, find this in Spinoza. And, and you know, while, while there've been, uh, there's, been a, there's been interest in... in uh, continental philosophy in 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 this this kind of overcoming of these splits in various ways. You could talk about Heidegger. You could talk about Deleuze. You could talk in a very different register about I don't know what someone like Ray Brassier is doing with analytic mm -hmm. philosophy. All these people in, mm -hmm. interested in naturalizing normativity. Sure. It seems to me that you're saying that one of the things you found in in analytic philosophy is kind of people already having done a lot of work on precisely. Oh, this is, yeah. This is, yeah. Well, if you read, um, I mean, a canonical essay like Quine's Two Dogmas of Empiricism. Empiricism yeah. Uh, you're like. Man, a lot of this continental argument about Kant, yeah, like already there was already gone. I mean, yeah, it's just yeah, rendered yeah. moot by. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you accept Quine's conclusions, which of course are yeah, contestable, yeah, yeah. you know, Carnap had problems with it and everything, but like about uh, overcoming the, the analytic synthetic distinction and, yeah. and how yeah. this orients us in the world. Like, I mean, that that it's funny because yeah, I, I I think similarly to you. Uh, have been spent a lot of time in a milieu where it's all about Kant, and it's like this kind of links up with what I was saying about modernity, right? That like modernity is this threshold beyond which <laughs> we cannot get mm. <coughs> or see, you know. And Kant is kind of the philosophical avatar of that, you know. And like we're all in Kant's wake, we're all doing like it's all about outflanking Kant, if, especially if you treat like Heidegger as this like deepening of Kant. Mm -hmm. And then what are the big critiques about you? Oh, I mean, if you're going to take him seriously enough to criticize him, they'll all say, oh, he's still Kant. He's just neo-Kantian. Yeah. You know, that that's just what's going on in the, in the, in the metaphysics. Yeah. I mean, Someone's I think that's doing false. the count. Yeah. I mean, that might be false. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, yeah. yeah, but that, that's the critique, is yes. this idea of like getting past Kant. Yes, yes. Whereas, yeah, in the Quine-Davidson stuff that I've been reading, it's like, that's just not the problem. No. You know, and there's obviously a Kantian element to Sellers and then what, like... Maybe even Davidson, but yeah. up to a point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah. Like, and, but it's like, but Kant is just one figure among others. It's, yes. It doesn't have that kind of like yes. epochal, yes. like, yes. kind of significance. 
So um, <laughs> that is the sort of thing an ethnographer discovers often, right? Like, yeah. and, a, and a historian that, like, the thing, like, I don't know if you're doing something like uh, when we found, like, the way the Arabs were reading Aristotle or Plato, yeah. right? Like, it's often like, oh, the emphases are completely different, right? Like, yeah. like the things that are important that, like, we've all written about Book Six of the Republic and the ideas, yeah. and and like Al Farabi's writing about the book four in the education of the guardians, right? As if that's the bit that really matters. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah well, I mean, a big, uh, uh, you know, uh, another kind of, you know, transitional moment in this, which we can rationalize now, after the right. fact, <laughs> is, uh, you <laughs> know, I, I've always thought that, you know, Hayden White isn't read sufficiently by practicing historians. Hayden White, notoriously in metaphysics, like, set, oh, not metaphysics, uh, metahistory, you know, has this set of theses about how, um, you know, our historical arguments are driven more by moral and aesthetic preferences and that the frames kind of prefigure the intelligibility of the past. That the past itself is just kind of an infinite array of data, just like the present is, and that it's, you know, the kind of plot that, that a historian is going to bring to it that's really going to, like, give significance to what's going on. Um, and I always thought, you know, historians, like, think that they can kind of ignore this or something, and or they think they can hide their political commitments and be purely objective and all stuff, but White's really got them. Mm. And I do think that there's a lot of valuable things about what White's saying, and I do think that it behooves historians to be more explicit about their political commitments and all those things. But, um, I mean, I had a, a really strong moment when I read one of Davidson's uh, more famous essays called On the Very Idea of a Conceptual Scheme. Mm -hmm. Davidson says, you know, Quine named two dogmas of empiricism, but he thought forgot the third, which is the distinction between scheme and content. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, all empiricists, and here he's talking about logical empiricists, but all kinds of empiricists are all about uh, discovering the scheme that makes certain data appear a yeah. certain way, and this is what renders it all intelligible. And, and Davidson argues that this is ultimately unsustainable. Yeah. Like, in, in, it's incoherent, ultimately. Incommensurability of schemes is belied by the fact that they're named as such, as incommensurable uh -huh, shows that we're uh -huh, actually talking uh -huh. about. And so, like, he does all these very interesting moves that show that it doesn't work. And, it, it, and I realized, oh, shit, you know, Hayden White is not, I mean, I don't know if Davidson even knew what he was doing, but, like, it clearly falls within the area kind of detonated by that argument because White is doing the Kantian thing of saying, like, look, my scheme is my, the intelligibility of the past is a product of the scheme that I use to overlay on this data. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, and and so so when that gets challenged, and 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 by challenging that, you're 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 challenging these kind of Kantian habits that we have uh, for understanding things. Yeah, it seems. To, yeah, it seems to me that that you're tracing like, uh, and and this seems perfectly intelligent. That it's the very idea of. Um, uh, a, a scheme in the sense that Davidson's talking about that potentially can lead to, you know, theses of strong incommensurability about yeah, whatever, exactly. about cultures or exactly. about historical epochs or or whatever you're talking about. And so and so, given that this is a kind of a doxa in some continent or dogma in some continental philosophy circles, yeah, seeing absolutely. it exploded is, is really interesting to you. And this leads me to a, another question, and sorry to bring French people back into things, but... Um, uh, I'm, 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 <laughs> that's um, the love for French people. Of course, of course. I, it, it hasn't gone. No, no, no. You can say Davidson. But, <laughs> Yeah, I won't. <laughs> I would say Davison, but um, but uh, yeah, you. Um, it, so, it's been through kind of phenomenology and throughout. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think your current work, like it seems to me, on the one hand, there is a certain hostility to a hostility to an aspect of phenomenology, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I stress an aspect, right? And I think it would be around something like. Uh, you know, an appeal to lived experience, especially, especially if lived experience then becomes, you know, evoked as this kind of monad, like, again, we're going to, you know, my private scheme of lived experience and so on. But, 
But something else I've heard you talk about in a different context, you made a reference to it early in the podcast, is I also think that while you're interested in truth and and this and interested in a kind of um, uh, you reject a kind of uh, I don't know post. Kantian, vulgar, Heideggerian relativism, and so on, and this is this is a part of of, mm-hmm. of your rationalism that you also have reservations. Um, I think I think political reservations about a, a, maybe a kind of mm, facile counter discourse to this. You made reference to it before that mm-hmm. that, that maybe like too quickly, um, you know, uh, uh, evokes the buzzwords of, 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 you know, the evils of identity politics or something yeah, like yeah. that, that you're cautious about this. And now I'm not sure you see the, the you might not see the connection that I'm, I'm positing here, but but this also reminds me of perhaps not usefully, but so, so there's one on that, uh, yeah, what, what you, hmm, what you think would be, so the question about what you think would be going too far in the name of rationalism and rejecting like phenomenological claims about lived experience and so on. Like on the one hand, mm. you seem to have a problem with this, but I also think you're, you're uncomfortable with some of the, the two, maybe too glib discourse about, about how we must get beyond such things and the horror of relativistic discourses and, 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 and so on. Maybe, maybe that's not true, but second, uh, that uh, I, I, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking about some of the things that I've seen in your work on, on someone like Walter Ben Michaels or, right, or, or right. something like that. And, and second, uh, I, it raises the question of your relationship to Roncier, who you, who you also mentioned before, because I think possibly on the, the rationalist grounds of Spinoza's constant phenomenology and your, your sympathy for Althusser, that you're originally quite unsympathetic to Rancière and his project and it, it seems to me that, that this has changed and I, mm. I wonder why that is so and whether it has something to do with your with a position about the limits of, of rationalist discourse in this maybe especially in the Althusserian model yeah yeah, yeah no I mean that's a, again a very good set of questions I mean I'm glad you brought up Walter Ben Michaels I've been reading uh, his work pretty diligently for the last few years I don't think I've published anything about it I have something coming out in a volume with Duke next year, a 15th anniversary edition on Reading Capital, um, in which I bring in Michael's recent work and, and compare it to what Althusser is up to. Uh, remains to be seen whether, I mean, it's one of those things that I wonder how he will, if, if or how he will react to that. He'll probably be baffled by it. <laughs> probably a little annoyed. I don't know if he cares. But, um, I mean, you know, Michael's is obviously a controversial figure. He's a polemicist. I seem to be drawn to polemicists. I'll yes. To polemicists too. Um, and I think that there's a lot of a lot of things right in, in Michael's work. Um, I often find myself persuaded by him. Um, I mean, I think that he can be a little glib in his own dismissals of, of uh, the identity politics stuff or, or even just coding certain things as identity politics. Indeed, indeed. Um, but I'll tell you, I mean, the, the ultimate value that comes out of his work for me is his relentless insistence on, um, on uh, not just the possibility, but the fact of disagreement and what the fact of disagreement tells us about what we're actually disagreeing about. Um, and that he, I mean, that's obviously what he's been doing since the shape of the signifier and everything, sort of challenging a cultural studies model or a privileging of difference that kind of uh, basically puts difference in place of disagreement. That yes. makes us having different, different views instead of disagreeing about something in the world. Um, it's not coincidental here, too, that Michael cites Davidson, that he like, yeah, right, attended right. his lectures at Berkeley. I mean, that could have just been kind of window dressing. I think Michael's is an original thinker. I don't think, I don't know how much Davidson he actually like imbibed or anything. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but again, this kind of constellation is, is there, you know. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I find something uh, valuable in what I would describe as a kind of rationalism on offer there. 
um, in Michael's work and in related ways in Freed's work and, and, you know, in Ruth Lee's critique of uh, affect theory. I mean, these projects are all related in various conceptual and actually personal and institutional ways. Mm. Um, but I kind of just agree with, with what a lot of work that goes on by those authors. Um, but then, you know, what's interesting is that Michael's work has gotten more involved in aesthetics and like his recent work mm-hmm, in photography mm-hmm. and things like this. And he's had these polemics, or not, not everything he says is polemic, but he's had these uh, criticisms of Ranciere that I think are sort of ill-informed. Um, I mean, on some ways, I think he, he's right. I mean, he picks up on certain things in Ranciere's work that um, dissatisfy a lot of other people, um, which is basically that Ranciere, through his own kind of theoretical commitments, makes it impossible uh, to articulate strong notions of disagreement or uh, political projects that would have a kind of lasting power. I mean, basically, Michaels is, in, a, in many ways, kind of an Althusser to Ranciere. I mean, Michaels right. believes in the possibility of knowledge. He believe, Or he believes, that, not in the possibility of it, that there is. We make truth claims, we disagree about we them. We have true ideas. It. We have true <laughs> ideas, and we disagree about those things, yeah. Um, and find out they're not true. Right? Yeah, that's right. You know, that's and right. and, and stuff right. like that. So, so that you kind of can see that going on. I, I don't think Ranciere has ever responded to what Michaels has said about him, which is, which is too bad. Um, but, what I, what, but what kind of keeps me coming back to Ranciere is um, I, this kind of, despite himself, there is this kind of Althusserian hmm. <laughs> element in Ranciere, and it really comes out in Aesthesis, which I think is a masterpiece that just hasn't really been fully uh, appreciated for what it is. But, the, but you know, what, what interests me about that work is that it's, it's a political work. Uh, you know, it kind of exemplifies Ranciere's uh, vision of how he thinks politics works. But it's also a historical work, and it is based, it's not just art history, it's kind of like this rewriting of the 19th and 20th century, I mean, most of it's in the 19th century, in like Ranciere's vision. And for him, I kind of see the kind of infinite, incessant distribution and redistribution of the sensible that goes on in various aesthetic scenes for yeah. him, yeah. as, again, exemplifying um, the Spinoza's thesis, we have true ideas. Because it's like having a true idea here doesn't mean that there's not a true idea five minutes later somewhere else, like that it, or in or in a, in a sequence, and that these things can kind of constantly be reoriented. And just because uh, things change, you're going to have a different true idea about what the things are now. Mm-hmm. And that in any given instance, you're kind of having a true idea. I mean, there's this scene in Spinoza's Contemporaneology where I talk about De Santi yeah, uh, responding yeah. to Merleau-Ponty, kind of challenging him on. Uh, what a true idea could possibly mean when he, oh, it's uh, the other Meloponti challenging Desanti. challenging Desanti yeah, 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 saying yeah. what does it mean you yeah. think along with God which is of course an ill-advised thing to say <laughs> in a doctoral exam anyway but like but it, you know but but Desanti's answer is like you know phenomenologists are always interested in ground they're yeah. always interested yeah. in foundation they're always interested in the kind of extrinsic thing that will then give the value um, but that what the Spinozist is able to show is that you will never arrive at that um, but the, in each instance, ad infinitum, you're having a true idea. Now, obviously, deconstruction is also interested in like getting rid of the ground. That's yes, the whole yes, significance yes. of Derrida's critique of phenomenology. Yes, indeed. And to show that you know that ground will always be deferred, deferrance. Yes. yes. But what go, seems to kind of go by the board with the Derridian view is the idea that those local moments would uh, give rise to contestable things, or like genuine disagreements that could happen in, in these kind of, iter, you know, incessantly iterated moments. Mm. And um, because why disagree if, you know, the truth to be revealed is simply going to be deferred to the next iteration, which, as we know, is indefinite. And yes, yes, indeed. Happen. And so we just kind of wait, you know, yes, for, for a truth that Messiah, will never come. Yeah, 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 and yeah, it's yeah. like, well, no, just forget all that. 
Yeah. Take a more deflationary account of truth. Yeah. Realize that you're actually disagreeing. Yeah. And like you have a kind of good theorization. You have a good kind of description of, of what's kind of going on. Now, what does this have to do with Ranciere? Something, I promise. I mean, it may not be coming into my head right now, but I do think that the way that like you read some of those scenes, like you read him on the red and the black, or you read him on uh, A.G. and Evans, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, in Estesis, and you can kind of see how this um, reorientation is happening. I mean, you know, Michael's stake on that book is to say, like, look, the point of this project was to show that there is an exploitive, exploitative relation that's happening. These sharecroppers are being exploited. There is an injustice here. Uh, and that the art in various ways formally signals this knowledge and mm. that it's precisely the inability of the subject of the art to see the, see the art as art that is the index of the difference between those of us who are not exploited and those of us who are. You know, and it's like basically, you know, that's, that's kind of the claim. So he kind of links aesthetics and epistemology in an interesting way. And he says that Ranciere misses this because Ranciere uh, wants to show how uh, the sharecroppers themselves kind of participate in the aesthetic field. Uh, you know, there's a certain art to the way they arrange their silverware. Um, who knows what um, uh, Walker Evans was thinking when he took this photo. And this, of course, like sends Michaels off on an anti-intentionalist tirade about how, you know, artists know what they're doing or there is intention, whether they know it or not, and all this stuff. But, like, I feel like this is, these, are, these guys have kind of been like ships passing in the night. And that there is a way in which actually they're both alighting on, uh, you know, certain important things or certain important ways of thinking about what happens in particular moments where we contest, you know, what's going on in the world. Like, and I guess the way I would link up the rationalism back with the norms, because you've asked me this several times over the course of the interview, and I think I've kind of constantly evaded it. Um, and maybe this has something to do with kind of the, the transition in my thinking that's been going on as I've been doing more work with philosophy, is like, I'd, it's, you can never derive your norms from your facts. No. Like, um, that's fine. You know, like, obviously, like, you read anything I've written, I, I get that. The whole conclusion of Spinoza's Confronology is to try to kind of argue against anyone who would derive a no political norm from the nominal fact of a transcendent negative theological entity that we don't know about. You know <laughs> what I mean? Right. So right. like, I challenge this. But at the same time, I feel like you can't bring your norms to bear on things that aren't facts. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like you need an account of facts. And like what, what makes it, you know, how we know things and how we know certain things are going on. And the dilemma, of course, is when you start talking about things about exploitation, political injustice, you're like, you get into this whirlwind where it's like, no, man, it's your normative commitment that <laughs> allows you to describe it that way and to say that the, it's a fact of exploitation. Whereas the person doing the exploiting is like, this is an exploitation. This is a totally just exchange. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah, I mean? yeah, 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 like, exactly. They can and do say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they, a yeah. So, yeah. so I don't have an answer to this. No. You know, but I think it's a serious philosophical problem. Yeah. And I think that like getting rid of the epistemology or getting rid of the appeal to facts or getting rid of the like the reality of disagreement or the significance of truth claims is just like not going to help you very much right. on, on the normative stuff. Great, great. I, I, Nox, I'm going to make a, a suggestion to you before I ask you a, a, a last question. And this, this, the suggestion is just, just um, so, something I was thinking about when you were talking uh, uh, then of, of how I, I interpret and, and maybe wrongly, but but this uh, 
Roncy and ben, ben Michael's relationship in your work, just, uh, just on the partially on the basis of stuff I've, I've I've heard you say and read, but also on the basis of your statements, just that it's just we we talked about the the limits uh, or or these concerns that people have had about Spinoza since he since his he wrote the ethics about about the potentially nihilistic consequences and so forth. And we've talked a lot about the importance of of rationalism for, for you, mm-hmm. and in particular in regards to politics. Um, at the same time, when I was when I was talking about the the way a kind of rationalism can can have maybe a, a deleterious political consequences is 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 at despite its necessity and importance is at the level where you know uh, we we talked about elitism where you use it to um, disavow certain speech claims or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And I think my my sense is that part of your reservations about some of the rhetoric in, in Michael's or what you said, you know, mm-hmm. labeling things identity politics and so on when they're not is potentially a position where you end up saying, you know, um, like feminism or sort of anti-racism movements or whatever, like mm-hmm. like that they're they're merely merely phenomenological, like like in the right, in the right, vulgar right. sense or empirical. And and what what I think maybe Roncia does for you is is allow you to you know to keep the rationalism but also have this moment of no we pay attention to those moments obviously the category of disagreement is very important for Roncia we pay attention to those moments when um people make sort of quad politics a sort of irresistible speech claim and Mm -hmm. and that that even though you you know there's the Althusserian side uh, of you of your thinking my my sense is that you'd also agree with Roncia that what you you know that that you see what is 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 wrong in those kind of operations of uh, I, I don't know, Benji would say that the state or something that that tells people that their speech is not speech or, or, right, or whatever, exactly. right? No, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's very well said. I should just write that down. <laughs> um, no, I mean that's exactly it. I mean, in disagreement, uh, you know, which is Ranciere's major statement of his mm. political thinking. In, in, indeed. Yeah, but he has this line where he says a disagreement is not between the one who says white and one who says black, but between two who say white. Yes. Um, now again, not to like belabor this this point and, and make Davidson do too much work. This relates to the significance of Davidson's argument about meaning and truth conditions because, um, I mean, there's two kinds of ways you can disagree with somebody. Yeah. You can disagree with them because you're using words wrong. Yeah. And you will come to agreement once you figure out you're using, once you start using the words correctly mm-hmm. or for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's sometimes situations where the, you, the world, you're disagreeing about the world. And, and it's really, you know, like hard to actually think about when these situations are going on. So the example I like to use is a friend, a linguist friend was helping me kind of navigate truth conditional semantics. He was like, this is the example I give my students to describe the difference between truth conditions and truth values. Yeah. If I say to you, there are two pigeons on the roof, you understand the meaning of the sentence, which means you understand the truth conditions of the sentence. You understand that the sentence, there are two pigeons on the roof is true if and only if there are two pigeons on the roof. So you understand what sentence means and you understand what it would take for it to be true. You don't know if it's true because we can't see the roof. No. So you don't know the truth value, but you do know the meaning, which means you know the truth conditions because truth conditions and meaning are sort of the same thing. Yeah. So it's like, but we want to find out, we go out and look at the roof. And if we disagree, something very interesting is happening. It either means that I'm using the word pigeon differently from you. Yes. Or we're using the word roof differently from each other. Yes. Um, And it's really, really hard to conceive of a situation where... Despite all of our efforts, communicative efforts, we cannot agree on the words yeah. that allow us to say the same thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you get it, right? So like that's yeah. so that's a scene where it's like okay, it's purely analytic or whatever. It's just like getting the words right and how we use them, and we're gonna agree because we see these two like feathered beings on the <laughs> roof. Whatever. We agree what a roof is. We're using language the same. <laughs> okay, so that's not so that's so so there you go. We get meaning and, we, and the empirical 
you know, experience can verify the truth value. Appeal to the world, we know whether the sentence is true or not. Because um, we're both using the sentence to describe the thing we see. Um, but, like, take a sentence like this. There is an act of injustice in the street. Yes. And then you walk outside and you see, like, Darren Wilson shooting Michael Brown. Yes, yes, indeed. And indeed. it's like, okay, well, how does this debate happen? You know, and the question, I don't know the answer. The question is... Is disagreement over there is an act of injustice in the street a disagreement about truth conditions or truth values? Like, do you disagree in how you what you mean by the word injustice? Yes. You know, or and, do you agree or about, do you disagree about the world? Yeah. Do you disagree about what instance whether that whether that act instantiates those things? Yeah. yeah. Whether yeah. whether that shooting is like the two you know conv, you know, and then you get into difficult questions of reference and yeah, yeah instantiation yeah, and all this stuff. But it's like, but again, the open question is whether or not. That is a disagreement that could be resolved similarly to how the disagreement about the pigeons on the roof could be resolved by getting our words and our vocabulary right, or if it's a genuine disagreement about what happens in the world. Now, my instinct is that it's a, it's a disagreement about what happens in the world. Yes. My real instinct is that it's actually uh, a political disagreement. Yes. That it's, like, it, it's an example of a political disagreement. Which is not necessarily something that tends towards resolution in the Right, in exactly. The yeah, yeah. So how are you going to resolve it? Or like, you know... Uh, well, you, it's super derogatory how you resolve it. The event happens. So it's mm -hmm. like, a, you know, in a way, your description of it doesn't matter. But insofar as your description of it actually motivates then the actions you take... Subsequent actions, to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, then it really does matter. It does, yeah. And so it's funny because, you know, Michaels, you know, criticizes Ranciere wrongly, like assimilates him to like Bart and like things that Ranciere himself is actually very critical of. Very, yeah. Um, for privileging difference over disagreement when Ranciere is actually given a very strong account of disagreement. Yes, yes. And its basis in a kind of more fundamental rationality that speaking beings have. And where I see this linking up with the Davidson stuff is for him, you know, meaning and truth are intimately related because uh, the fact that our speech is sort of intimately related to a world which is necessarily common. So, like, Davidson in ways is kind of related to Sellers and Rorty and this idea that, like, language is essentially public and yeah. knowledge is public and social and all these things. But he has a kind of strong, almost kind of naturalist take on it. It's like we occupy the same space. The same events in this world, like, you know, strike my eyeballs that strike your eyeballs. Indeed. And, like, so it's trying to understand then what our speech, which is also physical, which is just, like, lips flapping together, mm. how that relates to these events. And you can give this kind of thoroughgoing, behaviorist, materialist account, but then you kind of alight on this moment where, like, intention matters, judgment matters. How does this fit in there? And so what I think you can kind of get by thinking about Ranciere and certain kinds of Althusser and Davidson and then hovering in the background of all of this, Spinoza's assumption of true ideas, is, a, is you can get a stronger account of what's really going on in political disagreement, how we actually define political disagreement. You know? And then it's like, I don't want to go some Habermas line of like, oh, if we could just kind of deliberate and find agreement, mm, 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 we'll get there. No, no. Because then I, I feel like not all disagreements are analytic. Exactly, you know? exactly. Like you can... You, you can you can have a dictionary and both read injustice in the dictionary and read every word and like generate a T sentence for it using yeah, Karski yeah. and be like, yeah, I get what that means. And you say, and then still disagree about Brown and Wilson. Certainly. And it's yeah. like, well then that's a political disagreement. And then, but again, this comes back to the point I was making earlier about like at the root of all this is our facts about the world. Yes. You know? And we can, and, you know, we, we ignore these at our peril, right? Exactly. Like, or we, or philosophers, philosophers, <laughs> philosophers uh, yeah. ig ignore like the task of giving an account of, of that at, at their peril. All right, Knox yeah. Um This seems to this seems to me a good place a, a good place to end our discussion. I'm just going to ask you one, despite throw you a little bit kind of arcane question that is almost asking for a friend is, I I can't help 
asking the following question to anyone who has read Spinoza. It's a completely technical sort yeah. of coda to our interesting discussion. And that is, what is your take? It's just something that I feel everyone who reads Spinoza has to do. This is partially from my friend John Rove. But what is your take on why for Spinoza, although there are infinite attributes, we only have access to two? Uh, what is my take on this? Um, it is, I mean, my, my response is that, like, it's a fact about the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and more links to our previous discussion than I was anticipating. It's a fact Excellent. about the world mm-hmm. that we have two ways of describing things. Thought and extension. Thought and extension. Yeah. And again, yeah, Davidson writes about this stuff in Spinoza's causal theory of affect and mental events. He has various places where he both aligns himself and, and, and demurs uh, from Spinoza's view on this. I mean, Davidson's problem is that he doesn't, he doesn't, he thinks that there can be causal interaction between the domains, between things that fit within the different. Spinoza clearly doesn't. Like, Spinoza like, like, clearly doesn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like someone throws a ball through the window. Yeah. Right. Shatters, and I'm gonna go. <gasps> I'm going to have a mental reaction. You know, that's a physical reaction. But if I have the, like, mental event of being, like, startled, you know, you would say that the physical event caused the mental event. I mean, that's a, a common sense perspective. Common yeah, sense. Whereas, whereas Spinoza's perspective is much harder, like, as in there are these two parallel right, lines right. sort of he going needs, on simultaneously. He needs yeah. the ball traveling in God's mind, yeah. you know, as along idea. with, <laughs> as idea. Like, yeah, and then so, then it instantiates in my mind. And there's probably a way. I'm sure Spinoza scholars have done this to make that just give a description of that that makes perfect sense and is like less offensive. It's kind of hard to do, and I'm not really interested in doing it. No. But I do. I think that that's just a real example of um, Spinoza sort of, you know, his rationalism. He's sort of saying like, it, it, you know, by the definition of substance, by the principle of sufficient reason, you know, an infinite substance is going to have can't have a limitation. Yes, yes. Early early definitions and yeah. axioms of the ethics, like opening, like first page. Yeah, and if we yeah. said there are just two, that would be kind of a brute fact that couldn't really be explained. And so then it's like, I mean, this is the Della Rocca stuff on Spinoza is all about. You can explain kind of any any puzzle in Spinoza by appeal to a version of the principle of sufficient reason. Like, mm-hmm. There can right. be no brute facts. And so it's like, well, if there were just two attributes, that would be a brute fact. Yeah. This raises the question of like, well, then why are there infinite attributes? Is that a brute mm-hmm. fact? And it's like, no, because it actually follows from the idea of infin- infinite substance. It like, yes. entails infinite attributes. Yes, yes. Because because it could express everything. that there, yeah. There's no limitation to its capacity. Yeah. I mean, the word I've thought about this is a real problem is if you try to like link up Spinoza with any kind of uh, intuitively plausible kind of philosophy of mind or, or materialist conception of history, it's like, well, no one kind of has a problem with the idea of infinite extension. I mean, it might be hard to kind of like behold as an image in your head, but like in principle, the idea of infinite extension is like kind of makes sense. Space but, is infinite. Whatever. But infinite thought. But infinite thought yeah. seems harder to pull off. And then, because then it raises the question of, okay, well, like the form of the attribute was there, but the modal ideas that, you know, are described under that attribute only happen contingently at a certain point. And that's where I think you get to the important stuff about Spinoza's ideas of eternity versus the temporal. That for him, like, temporal emergence and disappearance just aren't really a problem. And when he says we feel and think that we are eternal, he just means that, like, you know, from an omniscient view, there's no difference between before and after. Like, there's just no... You know, so we're what? We're finite beings, but like, it just doesn't matter in terms of the total, the total picture. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah, granted, it's, it's a real problem or, you know, it makes, 
But like Spinozism is never really traded on its intuitive appeal. No, 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 that's right. That's that's absolutely true. Selling point. No, 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 certainly not. Certainly not. And he does get he does get something from that counterintuitive picture, which maybe is that is is that you don't have a problem of having to link the two attributes in, in, yeah. in Spinoza because they never connect. Like, like from right. the counterintuitive, the counter, the total counterintuitive thing of that the, the, they're parallel and that they don't causally interact does get you out of the problem of having to explain how they would, might causally interact. Yeah. Right? So. Well, I mean, what I do like, I mean, there, there's, a, there's the Kantian reading, and I mean, Brunschweig and France and oh, yeah, yeah. others are, like, responsible for this that read the attributes as, as things like... Um, Kantian categories or something yeah. that like condition the way we see the world. But this would this breaks with the rationalism. This yeah, would be, and that yeah, just yeah, doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't and, work. And yeah. so, but, and people don't like the vocabulary line because then they think that seems sort of um, too conventional. Yeah. That it's like, oh, would you describe it this way or describe it that way? Well, they're both ones as good as the other. But one of uh, one of the key Davidson theses has to do with the what he calls the ontological identity of events, which is that event. And this does again, much like truth, has no pathos on on. In a bad using level, like you know, sure. that's an event that I got the pen. Sure, sure. <laughs> and he's like, um, but events are uh, events are identified by ontological identity, which means it's sort of like events don't care how you describe them. A- an event is singular, no matter how, what which way it gets described. Yeah. And we know that like cause and effect work in sort of a physical level. So then the question is, like, well, if I can describe this. Uh, f- purely physically and give an exhaustive physical account, okay. But what happens when I describe it in a way? Uh, that the mental, you know, somehow kind of, you know, participates in the account of the event. Which is normal. Like, you mean yeah. just saying, I thought X, right? Yeah, like, or I intended to, to open yeah, the fridge, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Or something like that. And so then it's like, why, do you, why, why is the fridge open? Because I decided to open it. Yes. And, you sort of seem to be, and it's like, then the question becomes, well, could you give an exhaustive account of that that's sort of physical? Yeah, maybe. An omniscient sort of view could. Mm. But it's like... But then we've yet to get an account mm. of intention. Yes, indeed. That is purely physicalist. Yes, indeed. And that's not to say that, like, in principle, we couldn't, like, sort of someday. But it's like you get into. I mean, I, I, I listeners, you should try this. Google, <laughs> Google, the quoted phrase, Espinoza's theory of intention. Yeah. Right. You heard it first yeah. <laughs> on Philosophy of Radio. This is now going to ruin this experiment for anyone else who does this. But <laughs> you will see that it gets no hits. It gets no hits. Yeah, right. There is no Spinoza's theory of intention. No, because no, no. you can't, like, talk about a discrete moment where, like, a mental event, you know, then has a causal effect on something outside it. You no, know? because of the parallelism, again. Like, because yeah. Of the, yeah, yeah. But I think parallelism is misleading. Because oh, it, it is. Yeah. And I also think it's a problem because it, like... I speak loosely, yeah. But, so, it, but it, it, yeah. it trades also in the temporal. Because it makes you, because you think of it as a line representing time. And then it's and then like, the two one ones. comes up, like, yeah, we have a yeah. straight line, then thought emerges, and we have this other line that yeah, breaks off and runs parallel. And then it's like, okay, well, what's this little, like, diagonal where it's breaking off? Like, how do we describe that? You know, then that's like the mystery of life or something, or <laughs> consciousness, you know? And it's like, no, 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 the point is not to actually even think that way. You know, I don't know. I feel like I kind of lost the plot there. No, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, the, about, about the like, I, I don't get all the stuff. I mean, I'm still thinking about it, but I think about how you have causal relations between something that could have be described in a mentalist vocabulary and something that can be described in a physicalist vocabulary. Which Davidson like, takes up this? Well, he, he yeah, challenges. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he treats it as a real problem. How do you get these vocabularies yeah, on the same page? Yeah. You know, it's an open question. I don't know. But these are these are these are issues on the agenda. You know, 
Anyway. All right, Knox Peden, it's it's been a it's been a real pleasure. Um, I hope to uh, I look forward um, with great excitement to your next to your next book. Um, uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, uh, you've been listening to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Um, thank you. <laughs>